Well, I suppose one of the most well-known events in the entire Bible takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And uh, don't worry, Will, I'm back in the pulpit and everybody's feeling the same way. (laughs) He saw me get up and just said, I can't take it anymore. Braylon, he was fine the whole time you were up here, and then you went back. Where's Braylon? I don't know. Well, uh, one of the most well-known events in the entire Bible takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And some of you, as soon as I say 1 Samuel chapter 17, you, you know immediately what I'm talking about. It's there that we read about this young Jewish man named David. He was facing an incredibly intimidating and fearful giant from the land of the Philistines. The Philistines, they were the arch enemies of the Israelites. They they had constantly plagued the people of Israel. And now, there was this man from their midst named Goliath, who was absolutely daring the Israelite army, or someone from the Israelite army, to challenge him. And there was really no hope. In fact, there was nothing but trepidation and fear among the Israeli army. There was no hope. You, you know the story. There, there just happened to be, however, at that time, one skinny young man there with among the Israelite army, but he actually wasn't even part of the army. He just was there that day. He heard the blasphemous taunts of this man named Goliath, And he wondered, how could someone like that blaspheme the name of his God? But furthermore, why would no one stand up to him? But that young man, David, that young, skinny, little man named David trusted God, and he would go on to face the the giant. And on that very day, David, you remember, became an instrument of judgment, not only on Goliath, but on all the Philistines and a kind of deliverer for Israel. He killed Goliath that very day, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 48 through 51, we read all about it. And as soon as that happened, I want to tell you, there was resounding joy throughout the Israeli army, throughout the the Israelite army camp, and for all of the Israelites throughout Israel. David, on that day, became an absolute hero in the land. But, when the people of Israel began to sing about his exploits, when they began to, to, to sing about his heroism, King Saul grew very jealous. Saul, you remember, who was the current king of Israel, was absolutely driven with jealousy and hatred for David, so much so that he attempted to murder David several times. Read about that, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 18, 19, and 20, repeated efforts of Saul to kill David. There was an essentially a death warrant issued for David, and that was... Uh, An unbelievable circumstance, an unbelievable circumstance, a a frightful situation to say the least for David. David had to flee. He was 20 years old at the time. Now we know that this was an incredibly significant time 
in David's life. Because whenever he, he, he often looked back at that time. You know, David wrote many psalms. And with most of the psalms, he never gave a, a background. But whenever he wrote a psalm that had to do with this event, he always gave a little title. Just referring back to what took place during this time in his life. Seven psalms, in fact, are written that have to do with this time in David's life. So as David is being pursued by Saul, he realizes that he, he's no longer safe there in Jerusalem, and so he goes to the city called Nob. Nob, N-O-B. It was a city of the priests, and there was a certain priest there named Ahimelech. He is there with Ahimelech. By the time we come to 1 Samuel chapter 21, he is there with Ahimelech and, and that, that priest. And basically, he lies to Ahimelech. David lies to Ahimelech, and, which eventually ends up costing Ahimelech his life. He tells him, he tells Ahimelech on that day, he says, uh, I'm on a very special mission from the king, implying, at least implying, that he had been sent on a mission by King Saul. But that he has no food and he has no defense. I've been sent on a special mission by the king, but he gave me no food and he gave me no defense. That's the story anyway, he tells Ahimelech. And so he asks for food and he asks for a sword. You see, it just so happened that the sword of Goliath was there as well as the bread that had been taken from the table of the Lord. So he's asking for some sustenance and he's asking for, for some defense. Can you imagine more dire circumstances than this? On the run for his life, without food and without defense. He's hungry, he's defenseless, and he's on the run. But we read in 1 Samuel 21 that he's able to get some sustenance because Ahimelech says, well, the only bread that I have here would be the bread that was taken from the, what we call the show bread, or sometimes referred to as the bread of presence in the Old Testament. Basically, this was the, the bread, 12 loaves of bread that would be arranged in, specifically arranged in six piles on the golden table there in the temple. He said, we have that bread. You see, each week, each, uh, the day before the Sabbath, that new bread would be baked, and then it would replace the old bread, and then that old bread, the, the priests were allowed to eat that old bread. So the only bread that we have here are these 12 loaves from the, the show bread. Those loaves, as I said, were to be eaten by the priests, and he said they're still there, so it probably was a Friday when this is happening. And this bread, according to Leviticus 24, 8, served as a memory of God's eternal covenant with his people. That bread was given to David and his men. This, this bread highlighted the blessed fellowship which existed between God and his people around the golden table. And that bread was, was provided for David and his men. And oh, by the way, there just happened to be a sword there. The sword that had been taken from the giant Goliath when David had killed him. 
And that sword, for some reason, was kept there by Ahimelech. The very instrument which would have been used to bring death to the people of Israel is now given, 1 Samuel chapter 21, to this young man named David. I just want you to mark this down, friends. That day, hungry, defenseless David is given sustenance and he's given a defense. Not because he deserved it. I mean, if you read this section, he, he lies to get it. Does, does he think that his own cunning was going to be why, why he was going to eat? Did he think he was going to eat because he was so cunning? Did he think he, he was going to be able to defend himself because he was so cunning? No. Those things were given to him that day, not because he deserved it, but because he needed it. He got bread and he got a sword. But, if you can follow with me in your mind the story, things go from bad to weird really quickly in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 1 Samuel chapter 22. You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, he gets the idea... He's just eaten. He's got a a sword. He gets the idea that it would be a good idea to go about 25 miles to the southwest to the city, to a city of the Philistines. And that specific city was, to be exact, the city of Gath. G-A-T-H, Gath. The very city, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4, the very city that had been home to a giant named Goliath whom David had already killed. Why do you think it seemed like a good reason for David to go to Gath, which was the city of Goliath, the the very giant he killed? You ever get an idea that you look back on a little while later and go, you know, it seemed like a good idea at when I first had it, but now I know it ain't. Now, I've never had that happen to me, but I'm sure some of you have had that happen to so I'm trying to identify with you, right? Here he is. He's going to leave Israel where some people were seeking his life. And he's going to go to the Philistines where everyone would want him dead. That sounds like a good idea to me. He's hungry. I mean, 12 loaves of bread can only go so far. He's hungry, basically defenseless. He's the only one who has one sword. And on the run, now he's in the middle of enemy territory. Let me read it for you. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul. And went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, just stop right there. Some of your your Bibles might read Abimelech. Abimelech and Achish, the same person. Achish is his name. Abimelech is his title. Sort of like the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh of Egypt. That's not a, a name. It's a title for king. All right? So David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? 
Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman? In my presence shall this fellow come into my house? Now listen. David was trying to find refuge. He was looking for a place to be kept safe. He was looking for refuge in the midst, essentially in his enemy. And that was, I mean, this is is after the fact, but I can say confidently that was definitely not the place to find refuge. He was supposed to find his refuge in God. Not in Achish, not in Gath. He was to look to God as his refuge, but instead he makes his refuge with his greatest enemies, which makes me wonder if he was pretending to be insane or if he was a little bit insane. By this time, as you read this, you can almost smell David's fear. And you would do, you'd be right if you did. Because David looks back on this time when he writes about this in Psalm 56 and he talks about himself being greatly afraid. Here's what he said in Psalm 56. Man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. I mean... He's gotten himself into quite a a predicament here. He's really in a difficult situation. The next thing you know, you know, he's going to Gath to find refuge, and he ends up in a Philistine prison. And he's got to get himself out. So what does he do? He pretends to be a crazy man. Now, as I said, I'm not sure actually how much pretending is going on here. He's got to be quite a mess right now. 20-year-old, you had the king whom you served throw his spear at you several times trying to kill you. You're on the run. You're hungry. You're defenseless. You're in the middle of, like, I can just imagine David going, my goodness, what am I doing here now? Right? How did I get here? And he begins slobbering all over himself, which, which was a sign of... of uh, disrepute, of, of, of disgust. And at this time in history, if someone was thought to be mentally unstable, if somebody was thought to be mentally unstable or crazy like that, they would have nothing to do with them because to do anything, at least the Philistines would have thought, to do anything to harm this kind of person would be to invite the disfavor of their gods. And so Achish comes in and says, you know, all this pomp and circumstance, we've called David, we've called David. He comes to see David and he sees a man with foaming at the mouth. 
Just get him out of here. Get him out of my sight. And that's evidently what David hoped would happen, that Achish would send him away, and that's exactly what happened. He's able to get out of Philistia. In chapter 22, he goes to a cave of Adullam. These caves where he would often hide when people were pursuing him to, to seek his life. Now, I told you before that the events during this period of David's life were so remarkable, so impactful, that at least seven psalms can be traced to this time in his life. I want to point your attention to one psalm, and that's Psalm 34. If you'll turn with me this morning to Psalm 34. This psalm is one that is written after the events that took place, what we just read about in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In Psalm 34, David reflects on those events while he's in the cave of Adullam, the southern part there of the land of Israel. He's still on his run for his life. He just barely escaped with his life in in hand from Saul, and now he just barely escapes with his life intact from Achish. And he writes this, this psalm in reflection of that. Now, I'm going to read the entire psalm. But as I read it, I want you to pay attention. Kids, I want you to pay careful attention to this. I want you to hear it very well, okay? And I want you to listen for things that sound like what we just read about in 1 Samuel 21 and that background, okay? See if you can hear it coming out here. Psalm 34. This is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, or that's Achish, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Remember his shame-faced foaming at the mouth? Kind of interesting. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, old children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
Many, affliction, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the, the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This psalm is a beautiful psalm. It's marvelous, really. I've fallen in love with it. I learned that it it was written as an acrostic. So basically each line would begin with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it has almost every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And I think it was written like that so as to aid in, 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 in memorization. This, this psalm was likely taught by Jewish parents to their children, and they would use this psalm to teach them to memorize the Scripture, the acrostic, a tool for memorization. And, and they would teach this psalm, they would teach many of the psalms, in order to help to refine and shape the character of the reader. And, and I want to encourage you to read this psalm and to spend time meditating on it because I know that this psalm will help to shape and to mold your character. Now as you look at this psalm, you're going to see basically two divisions in the psalm, you could, we could talk, talk about David's testimony in verses 1 through 10 and David's teaching in verses 11 through 22, David's song and David's sermon, David's praise and David's preaching. But all of this is, is arranged to help children to be able to take a lesson from David's life in order that they might follow the Lord even when times are rough. That's sort of the big idea in this text. It's, 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 it's a psalm that's written to help you in the midst of, of difficulties in your life so that you might follow the Lord. Now this morning, I want to briefly show you two parts of this psalm. We're not going to get into many of the details, but I'm going to show you basically two parts of the psalm. First of all, in verses 1 through 10, we'll see David's praise. And then in verses 11 through 22, we'll see David's preaching. David's praise and David's preaching. And all of this to to help us to learn something about David's life so that we can follow the Lord even when times are tough. Let's look together at David's praise, verses 1 through 10. And this is just, as I said, an absolutely marvelous psalm. And you you read it, but you have to remember some of the background. You have to remember some of the details that I showed you there from 1 Samuel chapter 21 in order to really let this psalm sit on your heart and mind and allow it to make its impact on your life. David is just filled with praise. And you know why David is filled with praise. His life has quite literally just been saved several times, and he doesn't deserve it. His mind is on the Lord. One of the things that I think is interesting is how many times the name Yahweh is used in this psalm. I count 16 times, the Lord, the Lord. Remember, every time you see capital L-O-R-D, that's an indication to you. The Hebrew translators are telling you that the Hebrew word that's being used there is the name for God, God's covenant name, Yahweh. That's God's name. 16 times. This psalm is so God-saturated. It is all about God. You might think with the background that we've been given that this psalm would be all about David, but it's not all about David. This psalm is all about God. Charles Spurgeon said, he who praises God for mercies shall never want a mercy for which to praise. 
He who praises God for mercies shall never want a mercy for which to praise. Now, he doesn't look, David doesn't look at this situation and see anything other than the mercy and grace of the Lord. He was in such a terrible predicament, and a large part of it was because of himself. It was his own doing. He begins this psalm with this concentration on God and says, you know what, I want to bless God. I will bless the Lord. Bless means to speak well of. And he just uses the terms. He just piles them up. I'll bless him. I'll praise him. Praise is a a song of genuine appreciation for greatness. I'll boast. That that means to to shine on, to to shout out. I'm going to continually make everybody hear, make everybody know about this. To magnify God, that's to call attention to one's greatness. To exalt God is to raise up, to lift high in the sense of glorifying. He wants all of his readers, and maybe there's some people who had joined him. According to 1 Samuel chapter 22, some people had joined him at the cave of Adullam, and he's just sitting there, exalting in God, telling them over and over and over again all that God had done. And he wants his readers to know. He wants his readers to focus their attention uh, and all of their thoughts on Yahweh himself. He wants them and he wants us to come uh, to understand that God is good and that we ought to fear him. He invites us to taste and to see that the Lord is good. He, He wants all of Israel to discern from this event in his life that the Lord is good so that they might also live in reverence of him. In verse 11, he says, come, O children. And that word for children is not necessarily mean just little kids. In fact, it's the term that's used for God's covenant people. Those who have come to understand, those who have come into a covenant relationship with God. He said, I want you to learn. I want you to to know from the event, this event in my life, that God is good. He says, in fact, I want you to taste and see that God is good. To taste. Now, we, that's something we've all done to one degree or another. And I'll tell you what. There's, I, lo- I love food. I'm just going to, I'll just say it. But there's some particular kinds of food that I really like. And this past week, we were on that big ship. And one of the things that these blessed people would do is they would bring you for dessert balls of blue cheese. Man, that's awesome. And some of you don't like it. And you have not reached a level of sanctification yet. But I'm telling you what, you put that cheese in your mouth and you don't chew it. You just, you just sort of let it stew. And the great thing is you, you smell like it for the next six days. I mean, it's, you always have to remember. But you just taste it and you're like, oh, it's so good. That's the picture. Not, minus the blue cheese. That's the picture that I get when David says, taste. Like, taste this. That's good. David wants the people to see this event in his life and to discern from this event something not about David, but about God. Spurgeon said, taste is an inward sense, a private 
powerful personal appreciation. To taste is to know a thing in the essence, outcome, and enjoyment of it. To taste is to exercise discernment, to make discovery, and to gain assured knowledge of a thing. He wants them to see God is good. What is God's goodness? And I tried to define it for you a few weeks ago. I said this, God's goodness is his kindness, his, his big-hearted benevolence, his well-disposed warmth toward his creatures. When I say God is good, that's what I mean. Now this event in David's life was something that kept coming back. He kept coming back to over and over again. It was something that really stood out to him about his life. In fact, if we were to talk to David today, and if we were to interview him and ask him about his life, I'm confident that this is something he would continually bring up. You know, there was this event, and, and it's written about in 1 Samuel you know, 17 through 22, and, and he just keep coming back to that, coming back to that, coming back to that. And you might be saying, what does this event have to do with the goodness of God? Because it's clear we can learn plenty about David from this event. He was cunning. He was deceitful, maybe overconfident, probably a bit crazy. But what does this event say about God? More, more particularly, what does this event say about God's kindness, his big-hearted benevolence, his well-disposed warmth? How did David discern the goodness of God? That's what it means to taste and see. How did he discern the goodness of God from this event? I think if we were talking to David today, he'd say three things in this testimony. He would say, well, first of all, I I see, I've tasted God's goodness because I was a sinner who needed forgiveness. I love what John Calvin says about this text. He says, If it should be said that David here magnifies the grace of God because by changing his countenance and his speech he escaped death, I again reply that David expressly mentioned this circumstance in order to render the grace of God still more illustrious in that his fault was not laid to his charge. You see what Calvin's saying here? He's not saying that God's goodness is so good, so great, that that he delivered him through his cunning deception. He's saying that God delivered him in spite of it. David uses the experiences leading up to Gath and in Gath and after Gath to call others to praise. He says, the angel of the Lord was close by. And he says, all others who are afflicted should hear David and join in praise of God for his deliverance. You experience, you discern the goodness of the Lord when you know that you're a sinner and need forgiveness and that God supplies it. You know, through life, I've always wanted to be open and honest with my children regarding my wretchedness. I want them to know that I'm a sinner. And I, I wanted them to say something like, well, gee, Dad, you really don't deserve mercy or goodness from God at all. Having studied this text, having studied the background to it, I, I almost find myself saying to David, well, gee, David, 
you were really in quite a predicament there, weren't you? Yet just when you needed it, you were provided with the bread, which was really supposed to be for the priests, but the bread was freely provided for you and your men, right? And and that was really an act of mercy, wasn't it? But it seems like you thought it was because you lied to get it. What were you thinking, David? And then you went on to Gath? What were you thinking, David? You were delivered from there? Was it because you pretended to be crazy that you think you were delivered? Or was this something uh, more about you? Or was this about something more than you? Something bigger than you? And at that point, I imagine David sitting back in his chair and guess getting a little bit of a wry smile. And I imagine this conversation going something like this. David saying, oh, it was something much bigger than me. In fact, it was someone much bigger than me. You see, I realized that God had given his word Not just that I would be king, but he had given his eternal covenant to his people. Friends, do you want to be able to discern the goodness of God? Then let us see ourselves as sinners who need forgiveness. And furthermore, if we would see how how good God is, let us see a God who delights in forgiving sinners. I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. David would say, secondly, I was a beggar who had no resources. You, you read it just the same as I did. He says in verse 6, the poor, this poor man cried. This poor man, humble with no resources. I lied to get bread and to get a sword to defend me. You see how bad it was for David? He said, I was relegated to faking, foaming at the mouth as a madman, just trying to preserve my life. This psalm is a psalm for the poor in spirit, those men and women who realize their spiritual poverty. David comes to the cave of Adullam and says, you know what, I really had nothing. I really am nothing. And by the time he gets to verses 7 through 10, he can hardly control himself and just exudes this, this trusting and says, take Use this event, discern how good God is to me, a sinner who needs forgiveness, a beggar who has no resources. Now listen, and listen very carefully. When David wrote this, he was still in the cave. His circumstances didn't change much. He was still a fugitive. He was still in very grave danger. James Boyce said, This does not mean that God will change every difficult thing in your life. But he said he will work to preserve you as long as he has work for you to do. I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. I was a a beggar with no resources. And he says, thirdly, I, I was alone with no help. There was no help for David other than than from above. That's what really stuck out to him. He was alone. And, and in many cases, in, for the most part, by the time he gets to 1 Samuel 22, he's still alone, even though some people had come to him. He was still alone, but what had changed was his perspective. He realized something. Back up in verse 7, he says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear them and delivers them. Who's the angel of the Lord? The one who is sent to do God's bidding to deliver God's people. That's what we see the angel of the Lord always throughout the Old Testament. Whenever the angel of the Lord is coming up, he is sent by God to to, to do God's bidding for God's people, the angel of the Lord. You see, this is God's work. He said, "I, 
I just realized I'm there in that prison, that Philistine prison. And I was, some of you heard the song from Johnny Erickson Tata. I was alone, yet not alone. David would learn, learn the same lesson that a prophet Daniel would come to learn years, years later when he's thrown into the, into the lion's den. He learned the same lesson that, that his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, learned when they were thrown into the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. Alone, yet not alone. He invites people to taste God's goodness, to look back on this event in his life. Not, and not to say, wow, David, you were so good. Oh, David, you were so great. Oh, David, you were such a hero. And we'll look back and go, no, David was nothing. He wasn't good. He wasn't heroic. He was rather cowardly. He wasn't really trusting God. And he says, look at this event and see what God did and see how good he is. And then, if I can move on quickly to David's teaching. This is going to come up to us a little bit later in subsequent weeks, but verses 11 through 22, David wants this to serve as a teaching moment for those who are in a covenant relationship with God. He, he takes in verses 11 through 14 and he shares some lessons from his life. Come, old children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. Here's, here's what I want to teach you. Do you desire to keep your life? Do you desire life? Do you desire to love the days of your life? Here's what I've learned. This is why I wanted you to see, I wanted you to hear some of that background and then to read this psalm because I think it just, there's just, if you overlay this, you see exactly what's happening here. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. What, what was David, how was David seeking to preserve his life? He was seeking to preserve his life with his own words. Keep your tongue from, from deceit. Keep your life from evil. Right? These are lessons from his life. He wants them to learn from him, just like he wants us to learn from him. And then he goes quickly, verses 15 through 22, and then switches to talking about some lessons from his Lord. Again, we'll talk about these in coming weeks. I have learned, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Here's what I've learned about the Lord. His eyes are toward the righteous. His ears toward their cry. His face is against those who do evil. I, I've learned that our, that our God, the Lord God, Yahweh, is a redeeming God. I've, I've learned that Yahweh is a preserving God. I've learned that Yahweh is a faithful God. He is faithful to keep His Word. And that's exactly... There's another psalm that reflects on this very event, Psalm 56. It's kind of the mirror psalm. Psalm 56 is written in the Philistine jail, and Psalm 34 is written after the Philistine jail. In Psalm 56, he says... I remembered the word of the Lord. And he remembers that God is faithful to do all that he has promised to do. So now to the question that's really spawned the sermon this morning. 
a question that maybe you came in here asking today, and that question is, is the Lord really good? Is the Lord good? Well, if you see yourself as a pretty good person, and that all that comes to you really is what you deserve, in fact, you actually deserve more, God isn't really that good. But if you see that you are a sinner who needs forgiveness, a beggar with no resources, if you see that you are alone with no help, then you can see that God is good. That doesn't mean that your circumstances will necessarily change, but it will change your perspective. You can use this event, the event like this in the life of David, to learn that there is a God in heaven who has made and kept his eternal covenant with everyone who trusts in him. In fact, in this event in David's life, we see the shadows of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? He's the one to whom that bread which was provided to David and his men pointed anyway. I am the bread of life, Jesus would say. The the sword of Goliath. The sword. There is a sword that is greater and sharper than Goliath's sword, and that is the eternal word of the living God. That is our defense. He is the angel of the Lord who is present with His people, who encamps around the righteous. You see, in all your afflictions, In all your sufferings, you can look to a God who superintends those things. You see, to say that God is good is not to say that the righteous have no affliction. Rather, to say that God is good is to say that the righteous have many afflictions and that He is still faithful to His Word. The righteous have many afflictions and He is still true and trustworthy. If you've been with us at all this year, you know that we've begun this year in the book of 1 Peter. And we're in the midst of studying that right now. And all of that was introduction to our sermon today. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? Your laugh was a bit of an uncomfortable laugh. Like it sounded like, I think he's really serious. And I am. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and Peter is calling these scattered, sojourning, suffering saints to repent, to recognize, to repent, to renounce their former practices of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, and to replace that with a yearning and longing for the Word of God by which they have been born again. We are to yearn for the Word of God like a baby yearns for her mother's milk. Not simply an emotional yearning, but it is a yearning of necessity. I need this. And Peter writes this book with his finger in the Psalms. Particularly, he's thinking about Psalm 34 as he writes this book. And he alludes to it when he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, if 
Indeed, you have what? Tasted that the Lord is good. He's going to quote directly from this psalm in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He's got his mind on Psalm 34. And Peter's point in using this psalm at this point in 1 Peter chapter 2 is to use it as an example for his readers. He says they are in trouble. They're in the midst of difficulty. They're in the midst of hardship. And Peter draws on perhaps this childhood lesson that he would have learned as a Jewish little boy and remembers the example of David. And he tells them, you people there scattered about in Asia Minor, you have tasted the goodness of the Lord in His grace and in His kindness through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you experience such kindness and such goodness from the Lord, you will find yourself needing to lay aside these things which actually deaden your spiritual taste buds, things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Not welcome them, but, but, but renounce them. How can we say that the Lord is good? The Lord is good, and that's why He saves poor, lost sinners like you and me when we don't deserve His presence. He's with us. When we don't deserve His patience, He's patient toward us. We do everything to chase Him away, everything to cause Him to turn away from us, yet He pursues those whom He loves, and He loves those whom He pursues. And you know what? You can begin to taste the goodness of the Lord today when you come to Him as a beggar, as a sinner, as alone. Because you have this message of the psalm. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll, I'll never forsake you. That's how we know God is good. You have the promise of His Word, and it's over and over and over and over again illustrated for us in the Scriptures. What He's doing here is he's telling us, yearn for the word, brothers and sisters. If you've tasted, if you've just sampled, that's what he's saying, that you coming to hear and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ is just a tasting, it's a sampling of discerning. God really is good. He's benevolent, he's kind, he's, he, he is big-hearted towards sinners like you and me, towards beggars like you and me, towards those who are alone like you and me. He really is good. And he says, that's why you ought to long for his word. Because, brothers and sisters, it's in his word that his goodness is mediated to us. It's in his word through His Word, that He gives us nourishment and strength. It's in His Word that He tells us about Him. So, so tells us about Himself. So yearn for the Word. I don't get it. Why? Why it's so hard? We say, "Oh, I've just been struggling to read the Word this week." Oh, I've just I haven't I haven't, I haven't been I haven't opened the Bible at all this week. I don't get it. I get it because I, I am one. 
of those kinds of people, but I don't get it. How can it be that we can become so self-satisfied? We end up making stupid mistakes like David made. Going to Gath? What are you doing, David? We go to Gath. What do you do that? It's exactly what happens when we're outside of the Word, isn't it? When you're outside of the Word, you're outside of His will. Long for the Word. Yearn for the Word. That's what motivates us. And then he, he's going to tell us next week as we get back into our study in 1 Peter chapter 2, as you are coming to Him, that is to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, as you are coming to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You'll see exactly what He is doing in this, in this text. I, I know that today is Growth Group Day and Growth Group Sunday and some of you are part of growth group. Some of you are not part of growth group. If you're not part, why not just invite some folks over to your house today? I've got a couple of questions for discussion that I'd like to show you now and just ask you to think about. Uh, maybe you can think about these as you discuss, as you think about them today. When you look at Psalm 34, what are some of the shadows of Christ that you see in this psalm? If you, if you were to think about how would you define how would you describe the goodness of God being informed by what you've seen today? Why does God's goodness motivate us to long for the Word of God? Um, and then how does Psalm 34 prove to be a help to those who are reading 1 Peter? Put yourself in the lives of, in the position of those who are, to whom Peter is writing. We spent a long time describing them uh, to you. Why do you think Peter would bring Psalm 34 to their attention like he does here, think about those things today. Let's pray together.